From the WGLT Newsroom, good morning. I'm Jack Palaznik. Elimination of the sales tax on groceries would cost the city of Bloomington close to $3 million per year in revenue. City Manager Tim Gleason says the city pressed its case with the governor this week. We're hoping if this is going to occur with the grocery tax that LGDF is also uh, looked at uh, possibly restoring older numbers which almost uh, identically would replace that loss to the city. That's state income tax sharing money lawmakers stopped sending the municipalities several years ago. Governor Pritzker says the grocery sales tax affects lower-income people proportionately more than higher-income households. Gleason says Pritzker told Bloomington Normal leaders that if cities and towns feel strongly about it, they have the power to pass a local sales tax on groceries. A third of the water service lines in Bloomington are made of lead or galvanized pipe that might once have been connected to lead fittings. The federal government says those have to go. Cities like Springfield and Decatur are offering the cost share with homeowners. Bloomington Water Director Ed Andrews says the city is going a different direction. The city pays uh, all of it. We have built total replacement into our rate increase instead of trying to compel the homeowner for that portion of the line from the curb stop to the house. Bloomington will spend about $100 million over the next decade to replace about 10,000 water service lines. And Illinois Commerce Commission staff is recommending the regulatory agency reject a proposed carbon capture pipeline in eastern McLean County. Engineer Mark Maple has testified the project by Gibson City-based One Earth Sequestration is not in the public interest and its impact on landowners is not clear. The McLean County Board voted in December to deny a special use permit to install three carbon capture wells near Saybrook. The county cited One Earth's lack of a safety plan, but said the company could reapply later. Ford County's Emergency Management Agency coordinator also testified the project poses safety risks for those who live and work near the pipeline, including Ford County's only hospital and its largest school district. The Commerce Commission has scheduled hearings on the proposal for late May. I'm Jack Palaznik. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Join Scott Detrow and me for live special coverage of the Super Tuesday primary elections from NPR News. Listen this Tuesday at 7 p.m. on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Mitch McConnell has been the Senate's GOP leader since 2007. That's a record. But he's represented Kentucky for far longer, four decades, and helped steer millions of dollars in investment to his home state. Now that he's planning to give up his leadership post in November, we wanted to hear more about what this might mean for Kentucky. Joining us is Stephen Voss. He specializes in the politics of his state at the University of Kentucky. Stephen, so how has McConnell shaped Kentucky's political Political identity. 
When McConnell started early in his career, this state was dominated by Democrats. I mean, the legislative branches here, all the statewide elected uh, offices here, most of our congressional delegation. He was the lone Republican success, but he was focused on party building and he directed a lot of resources uh, as he gained in power toward making this the Republican, really supermajority Republican state that it became. What's he best known for in his home state? I mean, he's an old school legislator, not the one who, not the sort who built himself up through big speeches on the hot button issues of the day. One who focused on bringing home the bacon on constituency service so that he could keep his job. And so that's what he's known for. You know, at, at any given uh, four year period, there were one or two projects that a Kentuckian could rattle off that McConnell had helped to get money for. Uh, and, and that's what he publicized as service to his constituents. Uh, tobacco bio, right? 2004? Tell us about that. That would be an example. But, you know, voters have short memories, so y'all always need new ones. These days, they would talk about <laughs> the money he helped secure for the Brent Spence Bridge across the Ohio River. Yeah. What, what did Kentucky gain from leader McConnell that might not have been possible from just Senator McConnell? You know, even when he, um, McConnell was leading the minority rather than the majority, uh, because of the way the Senate works, you know, he had to be one of the few people in the room when the big bills were getting nailed down, when they were trying to get unanimous consent agreements to move forward legislation. And so he could, you know, direct funds, uh, make sure to protect one or two projects that were priorities for Kentucky and that they got through. Um, just having a, a, an effective senator or, or an ambitious one, if, if that senator's not in the room, you're not getting the same benefits as when you have a leader. So Kentucky, I mean, stands to lose a lot of clout. That's right. I mean, when, you're, when your folks are up in the leadership, uh, they can help out the state using federal funds. And of course, there are a lot of federal funds. You know, Nancy Pelosi is no longer the House Speaker. It still feels like she has a lot of sway in the Democratic Party. I mean, and not just in in California, everywhere, everywhere in the Democratic Party. Will Mitch McConnell have the same effect with Republicans now that he's not in leadership? You know, I want to say no, and that's partly because of the Republican Party, because of the divisions within it. But it's also just the nature of the House versus the Senate. You don't need to be able to control every last House member to have real influence over party unity. Uh, in the Senate, you need your caucus almost entirely unified because of the way they do business. And that's become so hard these days. Yeah. Last year, McConnell appeared to freeze a couple of times when he was speaking to reporters. Are his constituents worried about his health and maybe his ability to effectively represent them? Yes, I think much as people nationwide, Kentuckians were starting to worry that McConnell wasn't up to the job anymore. If he had, you know, if he had tried to keep pushing on in leadership, he may have started to have trouble with his constituents. But, you know, he's also got another problem with his constituents, uh, which is that the party has moved rightward a lot. Um, uh, McConnell was was never popular, but he could hold on because he did such hard work for the state. Uh, it's getting harder and harder for that sort of problem solving sort of legislator to satisfy constituents as we've become more polarized and more ideological. That's Stephen Boss, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Kentucky. Professor, thanks. Thank you. The political equivalent of a solar eclipse takes place this year because both the United States and Mexico have presidential elections. That doesn't happen every time because Mexico holds presidential elections every six years instead of four. This election matters to millions of U.S. residents, not least because 12 million people living in the United States are eligible to cast ballots in Mexico's elections if they choose, and voters this year will find it easier to do so. 
Gustavo Solis is the border reporter for KPBS in San Diego and is on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What are Mexicans voting for? Well, they're voting for a lot of positions. 20,000 positions are at stake in this election cycle. Hmm. So obviously the presidency, the entire federal Congress, nine different governor races, and a lot of local municipal races as well. That must be dramatic to look at your ballot and see that everything is on the line. Oh, it's wild. And by design, in Mexico, they have a federal election body. So the whole country sets it up instead of a state-by-state election system like we do. Mm -hmm. And they've really worked hard in the last couple of years to coordinate as many races on the ballot at the same time to line them up with the presidential election and hopefully get some voter turnout. And it should be an interesting election, right? Because you have two presidential frontrunners who are women. Yeah, that's another historic nature of, of this election. So it's actually super interesting. People along the border are pretty excited because there's a likelihood that Mexico gets a first female president before the U.S. does. Okay, so you have a lot at stake on the ballot. And my understanding is Mexico is trying to make it easier for people and more likely that people in the United States would vote. What are they doing and why? About 12 million Mexicans are living in the U.S. and they can vote if they wanted to. But historically, very few of them do. Last election cycle, 69,000 voted. 69,000 out of 12 million, barely a drop in the bucket. And what the state has been doing to do this is basically just a lot of work on the ground. You know, they've been visiting different consulates all over the country, L.A. They came here in San Diego, New York, Washington, Houston, just telling people that they have this available to them. They've been on the radio, they've been on TV, and they've really tried to make it easier than eligible to vote. When you say easier, what are the ways that people can vote if they're living in the United States? Well, they can vote, you know, old school by mail. They can vote in person at one of 23 consulates if they live close enough to them, or they can even vote online now. Okay, so uh, let's try to think about those 12 million people or the percentage of them that might vote, take the opportunity to vote in Mexico's elections this year. What are some of the kinds of things that may be on voters' minds? Well, I think it's important to note that Mexicans living in the U.S. send $60 $60 billion back home to Mexico in remittances every year. You know, this mm-hmm. is money that goes to family, friends, relatives. And the conventional wisdom is that they should have a say in how their money is being taxed and spent, right? They clearly care about what happens back in Mexico, at least to their families, because they're sending money. And voting is a way to make sure or at least have a say in how that money is spent and maybe increase the quality of life for their friends and relatives back home. Gustavo Solis with KPBS in San Diego. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate that. This is NPR News. Good morning. This is 89.1 WGLT. Welcome to Friday. I'm Ariel Jones. A legal battle has erupted in India over who gets to say they invented butter chicken. Who invented the butter chicken? It's like saying that who discovered fire? Coming up, a deep dive into the controversy over who created the iconic dish. That's in eight minutes. 
Support for the leadoff on WGLT and WGLT.org comes from the Central Illinois Regional Airport in Bloomington, where Allegiant flies nonstop to Tampa. St. Pete, Florida beaches are just one flight away. Close, convenient, CIRA. More at CIRA.com. The city of Bloomington has begun condemnation proceedings on the long, vacant, front and center building downtown. One of the things you need to know to start your day for Friday, March 1st. I'm Ryan Denham, and this is WGLT's The Lead Off. Now let's lead off with water. The city of Bloomington and town of Normal will spend about $100 million over the next decade to remove potentially poisonous lead water pipes leading to people's homes, almost all of that in Bloomington. WGLT's Charlie Schlenker reports on the legacy problem from a time before the 1950s when lead was considered a desirable metal. The Environmental Protection Agency has required all communities to inventory their lead lines by mid-April. The inventories show Normal has about 100 known or suspected lead or galvanized water service lines. Bloomington has more than 10,000. It'll cost Bloomington $100 million to remove the lines. Normal Water Director John Burkhart says it will still cost the town $1 million. It's a really challenging scenario with a lot of utilities. Communities traditionally ask homeowners to pay for the portion of the water service line replacement on their properties. The city pays for the distance between the main and the property line. Is it mandated the homeowner has to pay? The EPA mandates that the water utility gets it replaced. They don't care how it's done. Decatur has a program to reimburse homeowners a certain dollar amount for the cost. Springfield has something similar. Normal has offered a zero-interest loan and had precisely one property owner take them up on it. Bloomington is going a different route, according to City Water Director Ed Andrews. The city pays uh, all of it. Part of Bloomington's water and sewer rate increase last November will pay for the lead line removal. Normal will use leftover funds from other projects that came in under bid. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Here's some other stories we're following in the WGLT newsroom. State Farm says it recorded a net loss of $6.3 billion in 2023. The Bloomington-based insurer says the tough year was driven largely by a significant increase in homeowner catastrophe claims. Illinois Commerce Commission staff is recommending the regulatory agency reject a proposed carbon capture pipeline in eastern McLean County. A Cook County judge has granted a request from Donald Trump, allowing him to remain on Illinois' primary ballot until a higher state or federal court decides his eligibility to run for president. You can find more on these stories at WGLT.org. The city of Bloomington has filed for condemnation of the front and center building in downtown. The former Montgomery Ward's department store building has been deteriorating for decades, and several city attempts to encourage or provoke redevelopment in the past have failed. In this interview with WGLT's Charlie Schlenker, city manager Tim Gleason talks about what led the city to take this step and what happens next. Property owner has rights, and uh, we've seen that with many other properties uh, throughout the uh, city. Uh, We try to work, try to gain compliance, and uh, we know that this will likely be uh, something that plays out several months. The property owner uh, can object. Uh, This could end up in court, and it could turn into a years-long process, but this is a highly visible property. 
in our downtown, and uh, we've been trying to address uh, the state of disrepair and the lack of occupancy uh, since you know I, I started here six years ago, and no, it was even before then. A long time before. What all has the city done before it felt that it was pushed to this point? A lot of back and forth communication, Charlie, uh, with the uh, property owner. And really, it's not just on uh, the compliance issues. It really is related to economic development, where we try to uh, come alongside on this property, many others, uh, to uh, try to assist as best we can, uh, you know, respecting that this is privately owned, but trying to uh, move this and turn this into a property that, uh, you know, is uh, occupied and uh, better used to the city and the owners, hopefully. Will condemnation force them to tear it down? All the above is possible. It's, you know, not uncommon in communities, especially when we're talking about old schools, old churches, where uh, you go through a process or in a state of disrepair, it goes to a point to where uh, the property is turned over to the city, and then the cities are left with uh, the demo uh, that's required, and uh, hoping that's not the case here, but that's a very real possibility. When was the last time the city acted this decisively on a property that was non-performing or was deteriorating? I would say the uh, C2 East building is probably the most recent. And there's others, uh, but when I'm talking about prominent buildings that the community is very aware of, uh, the C2 East building, and uh, in those conversations, uh, truly, we've realized what we want to see, and that's uh, Property uh, ownership has changed hands. It's into the hands of uh, someone that can do right by the building. And uh, C2 East is uh, definitely uh, a success story. What do you want there? Really open to many possibilities. You know, that is directly catty corner across the street from uh, the Coliseum. And we know that that is uh, a location that is ripe for opportunity. So what comes, I don't know, but open to uh, the conversation. A boutique hotel or upscale hotel has been a possibility mentioned uh, over the course of the last 20 years. Is that your number one preference or is there something else? I don't know that it's my number one preference. That definitely has been the thing that I have heard of uh, the most uh, the six years that I've been here, Uh, but not exclusively. We know that there's other opportunities there. Uh, but we do also know, and the reason that the city's taking the action that it is now, that it truly is in a state of disrepair. We have those concerns, and we realize that the impacts on our infrastructure uh, and those surrounding buildings, it's not just exclusive to that front and center building. What impacts? Uh, water, sewer, the uh, infrastructure into that building. Uh, you know, it has uh, gotten to a point of uh, uh, disrepair where a clogged sewer system or water lines uh, that aren't being uh, maintained properly do have impacts on uh, the surrounding properties. Like what? Just backups. Uh, Not suggesting that that's happening, uh, but want to make sure that it does not happen. That's Bloomington City Manager Tim Gleason. He spoke with Charlie Schlenker. Before we let you go, today on WGLT, we're kicking off a new series called 21 Women Who Shaped Bloomington Normal part of Women's History Month. There'll be new episodes every weekday, and you can follow along at wglt.org slash 21women. And that's it for today. I'm Ryan Denham. Thanks to our producer, Rosalie Truback. You can subscribe to The Lead Off on the NPR app or wherever you get your podcasts.
Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Paul Brandt. Honestly, I appreciate working with BNA. I would just say that I appreciate all the tough times with me, patience uh, and, and persistence with me. Paul's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. NPR comes from the station. And from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunar.com slash crossing. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's morning edition. It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep with some culinary news. Butter chicken is to India what hamburgers are to America, a household dish that you can find anywhere. In the West, butter chicken is the star of Indian takeout. There are even riffs on it like butter chicken pizza, butter chicken fries, butter chicken pasta. But who gets to say they invented butter chicken? Which came first, the butter or the chicken? Well, there's a fight in the New Delhi High Court over that question. NPR's Dia Hadid is on it. Butter chicken is a smoky, tundra-roasted bird doused in a buttery tomato sauce, mopped up with crusty naan bread. But it's so much more. In India, the words can be a saucy wink. It's the go-to of countless YouTube cooks. Hi guys, welcome to Get Curried. What I bring to your kitchen today is butter chicken. It's shorthand for a culinary hug, and the dish is woven into the story of modern India, created in the partition of South Asia in 1947. Independence came amid a frenzy of communal violence. Millions of Muslims fled to Pakistan, Sikhs and Hindus to India. They included Kunda Lal Jaggi and Kunda Lal Gujral, two men who shared the same first name, the same profession, cooks, and the same hometown, Peshawar, in what became Pakistan. And after the two arrived in New Delhi, they shared a restaurant too, Moti Mahal. They served dishes that were new to locals, like butter chicken. It tasted creamy, melty, and delicious. You break your naan, you break a piece of butter chicken, and then you bite into a piece of that pickled onion, and it was really heaven. That celebrated chef and actress, Madhur Jaffrey. She grew up in Delhi and used to eat at Moti Mahal. It didn't have an Indian taste that I knew. And that's why we loved it, because it was like nothing we'd had before. So they became the most successful restaurant in India that time. Amit Bagga co-owns an Indian butter chicken franchise with Juggi's grandson and is familiar with the Moti Mahal origin story. He says the place was boosted by some serious star power. They had a guest, Mr. Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister of India. Nehru even invited state guests there. Richard Nixon, Jacqueline Kennedy, top people used to come there. All of them used to try the same food, butter chicken, tandoori chicken. The two original cooks, Gujral and Juggi, sold the restaurant in the 90s. Soon after, the Gujral family created their own butter chicken spin-off franchise. Outside one of their outlets in New Delhi, a sign claims Gujral invented butter chicken. Inside, 
We're served but a chicken that's as heavy as the red velvet decor, the way many here like it. A few years back, serious competition emerged. Amit Bugga opened a butter chicken franchise with the grandson of Juggi. Outside one of their outlets in New Delhi, a sign proclaims Juggi invented butter chicken. But this only became a fight after Juggi's grandson repeated that claim on a popular TV show last year. And Kundanlal Juggi, the man who invented butter chicken. He said his grandfather whipped up a sauce of butter and tomato to stretch out a few pieces of tandoori chicken to serve a flurry of guests who came into the restaurant one night. A few months later in January, the Gujarals filed a lawsuit that was 2,752 pages long. The next hearing is on May 29. Manish is the grandson of Kundalal Gujral, that other cook. The suit has been filed to protect my family legacy. He says his grandfather, Gujral, concocted the creamy sauce as a way to sell leftover cooked chicken. So he wanted to put it in a gravy sort of a format so that it could be served later. And this is key. He says his grandfather, Gujral, created the dish way before he ever came to India. He says he created butter chicken before partition in a restaurant he used to run in Peshawar, now in northwest Pakistan. It was also called Moti Mahal. So I asked a reporter in Peshawar to see if anyone could remember the place. And they did, like Iqbal Arif. Arif says his father told him a man called Kundalal worked in a place called Moti Mahal in Peshawar. He was famous for serving chicken in a buttery sauce. The problem is, Kundalal is the first name of both the cooks. And there's another twist. Both the Kundalals, Gujral and Jangi, had earlier worked for another man in Peshawar. His name was Mukki Singh. And some of the residents said the man who made butter chicken in Peshawar was called Kundalal Singh. That's a mishmash of all their names. So what's going on here? Pushpesh Pant is an Indian food historian. Who invented the butter chicken? It's like saying that who discovered fire? But I wanted to dig deeper because I used to live in Pakistan and Peshawar is famous for juicy grilled meat, not creamy sauces. And butter chicken isn't even a thing in Pakistan. It is not enjoyed so widely in what is Pakistan today. Nilofa Afridi Kazi documents Pakistani food traditions. She says butter chicken could have been invented in Peshawar before partition, when the British had a large garrison there, because it lay on the empire's northwest border. Moti Mahal was located in that garrison. So was the place of Mukhi Singh. So butter chicken, that iconic Indian dish, was it created for British soldiers to play to British tastes? This is Pant, the food critic. It is essentially a non-Indian dish. Satin smooth butter laden gravy, boneless chicken. This is the lowest common denominator for a non-Indian palate. But if the dish was created in Peshawar, it didn't leave a trace. Perhaps because of partition, when Hindus and Sikhs emptied out of the city and took their food traditions with them. Maybe even butter chicken. Regardless of where and who created it, what butter chicken became is spectacular. 
embraced by the first Indian Prime Minister as a culinary talisman of his new country, one of India's most famous dishes abroad, maybe it's worth fighting to own that legacy, even if it is ultimately unknowable. Dear Hadid, NPR News, New Delhi. It's Morning at Chicken from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Clouds with a slight chance for a rain-snow mix and highs in the 40s today. Sunshine, though, for the rest of the weekend. This is 89.1 WGLT. I'm Ariel Jones. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from Blooming to Normal, and your favorite podcasts, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download today at npr.org slash app. It's 7 o'clock. Support for WGLT comes from OSF On-Call Urgent Care, offering health care for minor illnesses and injuries in person at locations in Bloomington Normal or virtually 24-7. Appointments available online or walk-ins welcome. More at osfoncall.org slash urgentcare. This is WGLT. From the campus of Illinois State University. This is 89.1 WGLT Normal. Part of the NPR Network. Good morning. European leaders sent a letter to House Speaker Mike Johnson. It's led by Estonia, one of the nations at risk from Russia. And they pressed Johnson to allow a vote on U.S. aid to Ukraine. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Coming up, a man walks through the rubble where his business used to be. I'm Ian Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. His business was in the West Bank. He tells NPR's Ader Peralta Israeli forces destroyed it as violence spreads far beyond Gaza. Also, a wildfire torches many square miles of the Texas panhandle, and a financial regulator offers protection from medical debt. It's Friday, March 1st. Today's Story Corps recalls that other attack on the Capitol by Puerto Rican nationalists who opened fire on members of Congress 70 years ago today. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. The late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is being buried today in Moscow. A large crowd of supporters turned out for his funeral today. The mourners are being watched by scores of Russian police and riot officers. Navalny died two weeks ago today under mysterious circumstances in a Russian penal colony. The Biden administration imposed scores of new U.S. sanctions on Russia after his death. Texas officials say that the wildfire burning in the state's panhandle has scorched more than 1,600 square miles. The Smokehouse Creek Fire has killed two people now, and it has crossed into Oklahoma. This is the biggest blaze ever in the state's recorded history. Weather forecasters have posted blizzard warnings in parts of California and Nevada today. They warn California could get feet of snow in the mountains. Wind gusts in Nevada could get close to hurricane strength. The former Air National Guardsman charged with leaking secret Pentagon documents is expected to plead guilty. Jack Teixeira was arrested last year after allegedly posting classified military material online. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. Teixeira was indicted in June by a grand jury in Boston on six counts of willful retention and transmission of classified information. 
The 22-year-old is accused of sharing a trove of secret U.S. government national security documents, including about the war in Ukraine, on the popular social media platform Discord. He initially pleaded not guilty to the charges, but now prosecutors have filed a motion in federal court in Boston asking for a change of plea hearing, indicating that some sort of plea agreement has been reached. No details on it were immediately available, but the judge overseeing the case has agreed to the hearing and scheduled it for Monday. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Lawmakers in the Alabama House of Representatives have passed legislation that would allow state clinics to resume in vitro fertilization treatments. This comes after the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are considered children. From Troy Public Radio, Kyle Gassett reports the bill goes to the Alabama Senate. Doctors and clinics had suspended IVF services for patients following the ruling, fearing criminal charges or civil liability if embryos were damaged or destroyed. After hearing complaints and heartbreaking stories from constituents who'd been denied IVF treatment by major clinics in the state, lawmakers in the Alabama House of Representatives passed the bill with a large majority. The bill's sponsors say this is a temporary fix and that a longer conversation and debate over the legal status of frozen embryos will be happening later. Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey has already indicated she's ready to sign legislation that would allow IVF treatments to resume statewide. From PR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. You're listening to NPR News.